Thank you for praying with me. If you've got a Bible, let's open up to Mark chapter 10 tonight. Mark 10, we're going to begin reading from verse 23 and 31 of that chapter to kind of open up and uh, we'll not immediately address the text. So you may think we're talking about one subject or another subject based on what this text uh, is, is referring to. But this text is going to lead us into a conversation that I think is going to be very important uh, for if we are to understand what Easter is all about. Uh, if we are to understand why Jesus came and what Jesus' ministry was all about and what Jesus wants us to understand and what he wants us to continue um, uh, to, to be all about as his followers, we are Christians, we are Christ-like, so we ought to um, stand for and, and possess and we ought to model the same things that he you know, showed us in his ministry. Uh, he gives us a snapshot in the Bible in four different gospels. We see his life played out um, as, it, as it is and, and we can learn from his life and we ought to uh, be very diligent and very determined uh, to, to apply his ways to our way. Of course, he is the way uh, and we ought to be living in that way. So uh, this series is called Footsteps, uh, Footsteps uh, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps um, as he began to make his way to Jerusalem uh, where he would, of course, lose his life on the cross. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 23 through 31. I'll explain the context in just a few minutes, but this is just Jesus' response to, uh, to a situation that was quite startling to the people. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything. We have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But then he ends this, 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 this little mini message like this. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now tonight, Sunday night, next Wednesday and Friday night, so got that, not Sunday mornings, because it's a whole other thing that's, of course, going to intersect with this uh, topic in the season of Easter. But tonight, Sunday night, Wednesday night and Friday night, uh, we will be spending time with Mark's version of the Passion Story. Every year, I love to go through at least one of the Gospels, not entirely, but in some way, uh, I love to go through at, le at least one of the Gospels um, because the Gospels, of course, is, our, is the best way for us to understand what Easter is all about and the story that, that happened. So I feel like it's my responsibility as a pastor, our responsibility as a church to open God's word to one of the gospels and walk through it as best as we can to get an idea of what the Easter story is and what God wants to say to us all these years later through it. So tonight, Sunday night, Wednesday, and Friday, we'll be spending time with Mark's version of the Passion Story. So if you want to read ahead, uh, I would encourage you to read the whole gospel of Mark, just 16 chapters. It won't take you a couple of evenings to get through it if you just want to read a few chapters a night. But over the next 10 days, I would encourage you, open the gospels, read any one 
one of them, all of them, if you really have some time. But Mark's gospel would be a good one to start with if you want to start in Mark 10 and go uh, study in depth every chapter until the end. That would be great as well. Um, this conversation will culminate uh, to a very special sunrise service on Easter morning at 7 a.m. So you kind of know what text we're going to be in, and we'll be studying from uh, between Mark 10 and Mark 16 uh, between now and, of course, Easter Sunday. Uh, we're going to be letting Mark guide us along this path because his gospel tells the story with a swift and urgent tone. Maybe you've studied this before, but if you've ever read Mark's gospel, you'll notice there's a lot of ands and immediately's or King James straightways. Uh, you'll, you'll see those little uh, transition words again and again and again. If you read Mark chapter 1, just in that chapter alone, every other word is and this or and that or immediately this or straightway this because the story is just moving forward beat after beat. You can't get your breath in Mark because he is telling this story uh, with as few words and as fast as he can. Uh, uh, of course, being written, there was no reason to, to tell it that fast, but the point of it is um, Mark's gospel is a very short, digestible, succinct summary of the life of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at this information over the next 10 days that Mark gives us. Mark's gospel, uh, I think, is the best at summarizing and delivering us the story of Jesus in a way that we can quickly understand it and not have to really uh, you know, navigate a lot of theology, a lot of agendas that the other gospel writers may put in their gospel or may want to be teaching us through their gospels. Mark is just wanting us to hear who Jesus was, why he came, and what he did. Um, we'll reference the other gospels to fill in some gaps, especially next Wednesday with the conversation about the Last Supper, but the bulk of our time will be in Mark. Um, now, Mark, we believe, is Peter's version of the story. So Peter would have told Mark, uh, we don't know why Peter didn't write it himself. He wrote his own letters, of course, later on. But we believe that Mark is writing Peter's verse. Now, it may have been that Peter uh, told his story to Mark, and of course, the Lord inspired Mark to write it. We don't know the behind-the-scenes details, but it's believed that Peter uh, gave his version of the story to Mark or kind of superseded Mark's version of the story. Um, and it feels like a version that would have been written and told as soon as possible. So let me kind of explain it like this. Um, sometimes there are there's a, there's, there's a friend franchise or there's some sort of, uh, in, in pop culture, there's something that becomes very popular and it's unexpected or it's surprising. And the companies that put out the products are thinking, wow, we didn't have stuff to ready to put on the shelf. So we need to get this out quick. So they'll, you know, you'll go in a store and you'll see some things that clearly were put, were put out quickly. Clearly those shirts were made very quickly. Clearly those products were made very quickly is to capitalize on the hype around something that maybe was unexpected. So I like to think of Mark's gospel as sort of the quickly written gospel, quickly put out their gospel because the church was launching and the movement was growing and people needed to know the story. And the disciples wanted, God wanted a version in the hands of people as quick as he could get it there. So while Matthew and Mark, while Matthew and Luke and John would spend a few years writing their stories. John would spend a few decades writing his. Matthew and Luke would spend about a decade, uh, we, we believe. But Mark would have gotten his written down very quickly because it was about getting something in the hands of the Christians, getting stories in the hands of the people so they might would understand who Jesus was and what he taught and how they should follow his Example. So again, we don't have to know all that to under, to appreciate the Gospels. You can just believe that God that one day these books just came to be, and that's what God's word is. That's okay. But 
I think it is helpful to understand the unique approach that God used to get each version out. Uh, there's a story behind it. We know that Luke investigated and went and interviewed people and, 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 and heard the stories from people that were eyewitnesses, like Mary and, and many of the others that, uh, that, that, that were followers of Jesus. We know that Matthew was a Jewish, uh, formerly a, a very devout Jewish man, and, and he wrote from a Jewish perspective and, and really referenced the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was fulfilling Judaism. Uh, we know that John um, told his story in a very particular way, and he didn't tell it until much later in his life. So again, I think it's helpful to see how these are told from a unique perspective. Um, now, when you, re- when you read Matthew, Luke, and John's gospel, you'll, you'll understand there's a little more depth to them. There's a, little more, there's a lot more information in those gospels. There's more stories. Mark is, is, is less uh, detailed and doesn't feature some of the miracles, some of the sermons, some of the events that the other gospels do. Um, again, Matthew wrote to show how Jesus fulfilled Judaism. Um, Luke wrote to show how Jesus opened the door to the Gentiles and especially minorities, people that weren't necessarily the in crowd. There's a lot of stories about women coming to Christ in Luke. There's a lot of stories about outsiders coming to Christ in Luke, which is a a, a perspective that Luke exclusively gives. Um, John, of course, wrote from this very high theological place where he talks about how Jesus is God in flesh, not just from God, but he is God. And John really writes from that really kind of rich and deep theological logical perspective. Um, But all of them communicate the simple gospel. All of them talk about how Jesus came to save sinners, how he was God's Messiah. But Mark's gospel really sticks to that very general premise. Mark doesn't really have the, the, the ulterior agenda. He doesn't really have the Jewish agenda or the Gentile agenda or the theological agenda. Mark is just called by God to put the story out as quick as he can. So if you read Mark, again, you don't get all the miracles, you don't get all the sermons, you don't get all the stories, but you get enough, um, you get enough of it to get the picture of who Jesus was and why he came. Uh, so Mark's gospel, you could, you could summarize it this way. Mark highlights the words and works of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't tell us everything, but he tells us enough of the things that Jesus did. He highlights the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and why. what is his purpose? That Jesus' words and work, Jesus saves us from a fallen world and its fallen hopes. So that is Mark's, if you want to say, what is his thesis? What is his motive in writing this gospel? He's writing to save us from, fallen, from the fallen world and from its false hopes. And he's telling us that only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can save us from a world that has fallen. And think about how does Jesus show his godliness or how does he show his divinity in Mark? If you read Mark early on, first chapter, he is performing miracles. Um, He's healing the sick. He's exercising demons. He's doing things uh, over nature when he walks on water, when he calms the storm, um, when he's doing those sort, when he's feeding 5,000 from a few loaves of bread and fish. So in Mark, we get these very famous stories of Jesus uh, showing his power in spite of the world that's fallen, he's, he's filling those gaps in the world, right? So I use the aerosol can analogy a lot, and I don't have it with me tonight, but where Jesus had his aerosol can of God's power, and he would spray it in these very, very particular acute situations and say, this is what God can do. This world is fallen. I can fill that gap. I can heal that wound. I can fulfill what this world needs to be full. So again, in those instances, we see the bigger picture. We see what God can do for our hearts. But also in Mark, he is being very particular to counter the false hopes of the world. Jesus butts heads with the religious leaders chapter after chapter in Mark, especially 
in their observation of the Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders thought, well, if we just do all this, if we just follow these rules, if we stay in line, if we just go through these motions, eventually it'll all work out. And they were kind of trying to keep people in line, thinking that, you know, as long as we all just keep doing the same stuff over and over and over again, we'll keep the wrong people out, we'll keep the right people in, and eventually something will happen. They were more worried about preserving what they had than actually restoring what from you know, their hearts in the way that it needed to be. They, they had lost sight of what their own problems were and, and what their greater need was. So in Mark, you see Jesus doing miracles on the Sabbath day to expose the fact that their religion wasn't healing anybody, their religion wasn't helping anybody, and he would do miracles on the Sabbath to make it even more obvious how empty that religion was. Mark also shows Jesus going uh, against the society and cultural views and exposing how the world's agendas, whether politics or whether pop culture or whether, you know, the ways that the world even, you know, tries to sell itself to us, Jesus exposes how the world's systems, they aren't working for you. They aren't going to get you there, whether it's riches or whether it's religion. The world has false hopes and Mark exposes those false hopes for us again ultimately so that we would see that only Jesus can save us from and give us what the world can't so that is Mark's message in a nutshell we see Jesus show his power over this fallen world and direct people away from its false hopes Uh, we see him demonstrate his power over sin and over our flesh by doing miracles over nature and, and, and within nature and over sickness and disease. We see him exert his authority. This is a big part. We see him exert his authority over religion, over culture, showing himself as the superior and as the only hope. Jesus isn't a hope. He's the hope. The only hope, and Mark makes sure that we get that. Now, this isn't a deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. One day we'll do that. But if you read Mark over the next 10 days, I think these couple points will help you um, help you understand why Mark includes what he does, why Mark doesn't include what he does. You know, I don't think it's just that Peter didn't remember those things. I think Peter is telling Mark, hey, we don't need to tell that story. You know, yeah, that story's important, but we don't need to tell it in this version. Matthew will get to it. John will get to it. Luke will get to it. This is what we need to tell because we're going to show how Jesus demonstrates his power and exerts his authority as he is our Messiah. So in Peter's retelling of his time with Jesus, Mark includes the essential and basic information uh, that, that concludes and confirms that Jesus is Messiah undeniably. It's true, however, that there's something that Peter's generation would have heard in this text that maybe we don't automatically hear. So while I said that Mark doesn't have an agenda or an ulterior motive other than just telling us that Jesus is Lord, we do need to understand what the first generation or the first century Jews would have, had a, ha, would have needed to, to, to be taught about the Messiah based on their own, their own prior idea of what a Messiah would be. So Mark wants, us to make, wants it to be clear that God's Messiah wasn't what the original, what, wasn't what the first generation or first century Christians they didn't necessarily think that God was going to send a Messiah like he did. So when Mark's telling this story, there are a couple things along the way that make it very clear that they had an idea of what Messiah was going to be like, and Jesus wasn't that Messiah. And that was never what God intended Messiah to be, but they had kind of warped that idea or you know, made up their own version of what Messiah would be like. Now, the Jews had a slightly, maybe majorly uh, mistaken idea about Messiah. Um, when we hear Messiah, 
we think, of course, Messiah is God's Savior uh, sent to you know, forgive our sins and, and, and deliver us into eternal life. We don't have this issue when we hear Messiah, but Peter's generation definitely did. And let me explain. They expected a Messiah. Let's go to the next. They expected a Messiah to be a political liberator. This is, you know, extra biblical text confirmed this. The Old Testament people, you could see how they would get this out of that. The Peter's generation, they expected Messiah to be a political liberator, as in they expected him to be the next King David. They expected him to come in and establish a kingdom and not and replace Rome and not just get rid of Rome, but punish Rome and punish anybody else that were their enemies. They de- definitely expected Messiah to be a political liberator. They associated Messiah with an earthly work within and for Israel. So that's why, as we'll look at tonight, they didn't always really understand what Jesus was talking about. They had an idea of what Messiah was going to be like, and a lot of times they just told themselves, oh, okay, Jesus is just kind of winking at us. He's just trying to pull one over on us. Eventually, he'll be what we know he is meant to be, but until then, we just kind of go, go along with his, with his games. Now, I don't say, I, I say we don't struggle with this, but I do think there is a tendency within us to see Jesus as a political liberator and a political force sometimes as well. But it should go without saying, if Jesus didn't come to be a political figure or a political force for Israel, as in if Jesus didn't come to establish a kingdom for his generation's Israel, he definitely didn't come to, to set up some kingdom of man or kingdoms of earth, right? He came to do something spiritual for his generation, and that means he definitely came to do something spiritual for our generation. Does it have implications into our real world? Yes, but he did not come to establish a, a, an exclusive kingdom on earth for only certain people at the expense of other people. That'll happen one day when the kingdom of heaven comes, but this earthly ministry of Jesus called the church is not about that. It's not about political advancing or political you know, motivation it's about doing a work for everybody that everyone might see that God has a place for them in his kingdom and it's about the church living a specific way to send this message that's not what the Jews expected that's not what we always expect in our own Christian faith but tonight we'll see him confirm that he came to establish a spiritual kingdom that exists alongside and against and will outlast and will replace all the kingdoms of man and I'm glad for that because I don't want to be left behind with something with a flying a flag that doesn't mean anything anymore. Now, when we talk about Jesus as Messiah, he came to save us from our sins, yes, but he also came to save us from this world's systems, this world's hooks, this world's lies, the false hopes that try to band-aid our real, much more pressing issues of sin and separation from God. Now, something that stands out in Mark as really the turning point of the book is about halfway through the book, which is where we're at. Jesus signals to his disciples that it's time that they make their way to Jerusalem. So back in Mark 8, they begin to make their way toward Jerusalem, but really in Mark 10, they say, he says, listen, guys, we got to go. We got about about a three-day journey. We got to head that way. So if you read Mark, the first first half covers about three years. First half of Mark, Mark 1 through Mark 9, covers about three years, but the last half, Mark 9 through 16, covers about 10 days. Uh, so again, uh, the other gospels, they're a lot more, they have a lot more information in those three years, but Mark kind of just gives us a summary. The last 10 days, pretty much the same information, but we get less up front. We get, uh, enough to get the picture 
who Jesus is, that he has the power of heaven, the power of God. Now, the disciples back in Mark 8, they confess him as Christ. Peter does the whole thing. I say, you're, you know, you're the Messiah. Jesus is on this rock. I'm going to build my church. This is getting ready to get big. They think it's going to go one direction, but he says we're going another direction. But they, just, they confess him as Christ. They're committed to him. They hear him talk about, hey, we're headed toward Jerusalem. Now, when they think you're headed toward Jerusalem, you know what they think, right? They think, we're going to ride in Jerusalem. We're going to roll into town. He's going to say, Pilate, you're done. He's going to say, Sanhedrin, you're done. He's going to signal to Rome, you're done. And we're going to be building a kingdom that is without an end. So when they hear we're going to Jerusalem, they have two things on their minds, power and prosperity. So when Jesus says, guys, it's time to go to Jerusalem, and he winks at them, they think this is what we've been waiting for, power and prosperity, kingdom and glory. This is going to be what we've been waiting for, and they are rubbing their hands together because this is what Jesus has been kind of quiet about to the rest of the world, but they know what he is, they know what he knows, and they know where he's going, and they cannot wait. They have long believed that Messiah would be a new and better David, they start dreaming about their new and better lives. And to their credit, or to their defense, when Jesus showed up, he did say this. The kingdom of God's at hand. So when they hear kingdom, they think, well, of course it's a literal, physical, powerful, prosperous kingdom. Why wouldn't it be? So they couldn't be wrong, could they? The strangest thing happens, though, around the midpoint of Mark. And you can read Mark's, I would encourage you, we'll look at it in a minute, but I encourage you to read Mark 8, read Mark 9, and read Mark 10, because this is the turning point for Mark. There are several episodes where children, children are brought to Jesus, and some of the children try to approach Jesus. One of the children is, is well, they believe, demon-possessed. He's having seizures, and they don't know how to understand that, and the father thinks that he's possessed. Maybe he was, and he's throwing himself on fire. He's trying to drown himself in water, and they bring this child to the disciples, and the disciples want nothing to do with this child. They think, you know what? We are. We, have you, do you know who we are? I mean, Peter, Peter says to this guy, do you know who I am? I just walked off the mountain of transfiguration. I'm glowing like Moses. I don't got time to deal with your little, what, what's wrong with your son oh oh i can't get near him i'm clean you're unclean they just send the boy away and the father goes to jesus and to jesus i brought my son to your your disciples and they wouldn't help me and then jesus rebukes the disciples and says how long do i have to put up with y'all he says bring the boy to me and then the disciples are thinking why couldn't we do it then there's another episode where children are just wanting to get near jesus and the disciples rebuke them sharply and say, the king has no time for you. King is coming through here. Get out of the way. When we get large and in charge, we'll send you some treats, but not today. And in both instances, Jesus rebukes them sharply and tells them the kingdom he is building is much different than the one they're anticipating. And then he goes and gets one of the children and he sits the child in the midst of them and he says, this child is greater than any of y'all. And they think, well, Jesus, I guess you're just being nice to the parents, but we know that's not true. And then they just dismiss, and Jesus doesn't talk to them about it anymore. Now, the straw that breaks the camel's back, though, is a rich man comes to join the movement. This rich man, everybody knows him. Everybody wants to be him. People want to be with him. This rich man comes, and Peter and John and James are looking at each other and thinking, wow, we need this guy on our team. This is going to give Jesus clout when he goes to set up his kingdom. This is going to give us some extra cash. We need this man. And this rich man thinks, okay, if this is Messiah, I need to be on his good side because I want to make sure that I'm going to be, where, going to be in charge with him. And, if, and, and, and he's going to need me because he needs some people that knows the people in the town because he's just a nobody from Nazareth. So this rich man comes to Jesus. 
Jesus and he kind of wants to place him, he wants to talk shop with Jesus. He wants to make sure that Jesus acknowledges his glory and acknowledges his wealth and acknowledges his godliness. And Jesus just treats this guy like he's a nobody. Jesus insults this guy and then Jesus says, you know what, if you want to follow me, you ought to sell what you've got and give it to the poor and then join my movement. And the rich guy starts crying. I mean, Jesus apparently just talked to this guy like he was just a worm. And the rich guy walks away, and he's disheartened that Jesus didn't roll out the red carpet. And the disciples are kind of insulted too, and they start wondering, what's wrong with Jesus? I mean, one minute he wants to bring this demon-possessed kid into our crowd, the next minute he wants to bring the children, all the children into the, into the, into the community, and now he, he just insults this rich guy? So Jesus tells them that while he will provide for them, that he is by no means establishing a kingdom that's going to be buddy-buddy with the systems of this world. He rather was seeking to change the world from the inside out, just like he was going to change people from the inside out, just like he wants to change us. That's the point of the text that we read at the beginning of our time that leads us into this next section, which would have taken place as they continued their journey towards Jerusalem around this time, 2,000 years ago, the week before Passover in 30 AD, Jesus began his final trip to Jerusalem. And in this moment, Jesus has made it clear that the kingdom of God stands in stark contrast to the kingdoms of man as he's denounced sin, decries selfishness, and he's made it clear the kingdom of God is rooted in a different system than the world. That's why he had such harsh words for the riches or for the wealth or for the standards and the systems of this world. And that's why Peter says, well, we've gave a lot for you, Jesus. I mean, I know we're in this for the money and the prosperity and the power, but we've gave up a lot too because he, you know, here's Jesus condemning all the wealth and stuff. And then Jesus says, don't worry, Peter, I'm going to take care of y'all, but it's going to be a rocky ride. I hope you're ready for it. I want to talk about how our world operates, though. Our world operates on a greater than axis. What do I mean by that? Our world operates in a way that says, I'm greater than you, therefore I can take from you. We size people up, don't we? Now, we won't take from anybody, but if it's somebody that we think we're better than, we will, won't we? We take advantage of people. Our world operates from a, I'm greater than you, therefore I don't owe you anything. Now, some people are dignified, and some people have power, and some people have wealth, and some people have something about them, so we might feel like we owe them something, but we strive to be people that are greater than, don't we? We want to be people that are greater than so that we can take from who we want to take from. We want to be greater than so that we don't owe anybody. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the dream? I don't owe you anything. I don't have to do anything for anybody but me. That's the world system, isn't it? That's the axis this world spins on. I'm greater than you, therefore I'm not accountable to you. Isn't that what we love? We, we wait all of our life to be able to, tell, to stand in front of our authorities or stand in front of our parents or stand in front of our boss and say, you're not the boss of me. I've waited all my life to be able to look at you and say, I am greater than you. Isn't it true? That's the dream that we tell ourselves as humans. Greater than reflects our nature, but it also reflects our intent and our motives. All the systems of this world are built on a make-me-greater-than engine. 
I hope that makes sense. That our systems, religion is all about how can I become greater than somebody else? How can I you know, arrive at a place of spirituality or a place of religiousness that makes me look down on other people and makes me feel better? And I know, you know, we, we Christians, we say we don't do this, but isn't it kind of part of the church too? We want to feel greater than. Oh, I've not done that. Oh, you've been involved in that. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you, but I'm glad I had never done that. That's how we operate, isn't it? Religion, politics, I mean, don't even get me started. Politics is all about how can I be greater than you? How can I prove myself over and above you? Pop culture is how can I look prettier, be more popular, be better than, or be recognized? What is, our profession, what is, what is the, the professional ladder all about? I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard in advance, but isn't it all about make me greater than, give me more, get me higher? And I'm not saying that God isn't in some of this stuff. I'm just saying that what, we, what have we done to it? We have made it all about, what is academics all about? Get me more. Let me be greater than so I might be able to look down on somebody else. That's our nature. Beware of it. Our focus is what can make me greater than? How can I be greater than? How can I be established as greater than? Because our world runs by two things, competition and comparison. Now, we love sports in our country, and I, love, I like watching sports too because we love competition. We love being able to compare. I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't think that's what God intended on being in our nature, but man, it's there, isn't it? In the Gospel of Mark, on several occasions, we find the disciples arguing with each other about who is greater than the other. And when Jesus runs this rich guy off, that really dampens their whole M.O., who has achieved, who has arrived at this coveted place? And Peter, James, and John just went up on the mountain and saw the glory of God. So you know who thinks they're greater than the others at this point. Who has gained the system and played religion's games? Who has made the most? Who is taking the most advantage of the world? People only assume that Jesus would be the full and final version of all the world was about. They assumed that Jesus was going to be the extreme version of what they already believed, this, this attempt to exalt themselves and get to this place of greater than. But what has Jesus taught us in Mark, if you read the whole story? That God's salvation is not about preservation or exalting self. It's not about trying to make sure you don't lose anything or make sure you keep everything you've got and get more or exalting yourself. God's salvation is about restoring yourself and humbling yourself. Well, that's not what we think is the way, that's not the way we think up is right we don't think that's the way to get to the top of the ladder but that's why jesus says last is first and first is last in this kingdom he turns towards jerusalem and he bids them to follow in his steps and listen to what he says in mark 10 verse 32 now they were on the road going up to jerusalem and jesus was going before them and they were amazed as they followed they were afraid and he took the 12 aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed and the chief priests, by the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. The worst thing that he could ever say to them. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. But don't worry. Three days later, he's going to come back. Which, that had never happened before. So I guarantee you, they didn't hear that last part. All they heard. And you know why I think that they, Jesus knew they weren't going to hear it. That's why he made it agonizing for them. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked and scourged and spit and killed. 
Jesus is making them just agonizingly hear this. And he watches their countenance fall. As a revolutionary, Jesus would be deemed a failure. Messiahs can't die. Kings can't lose. Crosses were reserved for criminals. The series of events that would, these series of events would invalidate everything that he ever said or ever did because there was no way to understand such humiliating loss as any kind of game. At least not by the world standards. But what Jesus promises there at the end, he will rise. Again, they had no category of resurrection, and they didn't think something symbolically either. But if Jesus goes to Jerusalem and this happens to him, he will be forgotten, and those associated with him will quickly try to get away from anything to do with him. There was a stark difference in how they heard this and what Jesus meant by this, but don't you see what Jesus is doing here? He was trying to alter their expectations, give them something greater to hope in. They live by a greater faith, mind, a greater than mindset, yet their concept of greater was bankrupt. Jesus is going to lay his life down and yet obtain greater life. He bids us to follow in his steps. He says, in this world, you will try to save your life, but you'll lose it every time. And if you go by the world's ways, it'll cost It'll cause you to forfeit your soul. It'll exact a toll that you cannot ever get back. They weren't ashamed of Jesus. They weren't ashamed of the Jesus they thought would be king, but would they be ashamed of the Jesus who would lay his life down? Would they practice, who would practice such radical humility? Why was he doing all this? For some greater purpose? As Mark 10 continues, Notice verse number 35. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit on your right hand and on the other on your left in your glory. So I think they must have thought, okay, Jesus is just trying to run off the, 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 the fans and the wannabes. He's trying to make sure that only the real followers are with him. So we're going to continue to think he's going to be who we think he is. We're going to continue to think he's a political liberator. We're going to continue to think he's going to advance our agenda. So they come to him and they ask this arrogant thing. Jesus, hey, when you get your kingdom set up in a couple of days, can we sit at your right and left? As in, can we be the greatest in your kingdom? They see him as a way of advancing their own agenda, as a tool to fuel their nature of competition and comparison. Let me just say this. God is fierce and ferocious. He does not share his glory with anybody. There's no right, there's no left, there's below and before. How arrogant of any of us who would think that God is a means of our own gain. If anything, he would use us as a means for his gain. Yet the story of the gospel is that God did not do that. He came to save us from our sin because his love for us was greater than his loathe for our sin. And oh, his loathe for our sin is great, but his love for us was greater. And then Jesus says to them in Mark 10, 38, he says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say, of course we are. And he says, well, it's not my place to give anybody the right or left in my kingdom anyway. But see, they think he's talking about their ability to power up. They think, oh, Jesus, yeah, we can do, we can be as much as you want us to be. We'll work hard and we'll become greater than everybody. But what he was really meaning is, are you willing to power yourself down like I'm going to? And the next few verses, he makes it clear what kind of life that God will bless and honor in eternity. And it's not what they expect. 41 through 45, and we're done. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called himself, 
called them to himself, and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them or make it, rub it in their face, and their great ones exercise authority over them? Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So what has Jesus made very clear in this moment? He wants us to know what we're getting ourselves into, who, who we are following, and where we are going. We're going to a new kingdom that operates by new standards, greater standards. This may seem upside down than what we expected, but it's really because our own expectations are so upside down in the first place. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by our success or our superiority, but by our servanthood. You hear that? By our servanthood. Because why was Jesus going to Jerusalem to die? To save us by serving us and suffering for us. See, the disciples are indignant because they think that James and John are better than them. They think they've arrived at some place they haven't gotten yet, and they're jealous. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you will do what I'm about to do, which is give it up. Give all of it away. Give all of it up for somebody else. Because who was he giving it all up for? All of us. That's why he's considered the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because of Jesus' standard, greatness will forever be redefined by serving. By serving. Jesus glorified his Father by laying his life down for those the Father loved. We are called to take this same path if we want to glorify God. If we are going to continue to model Christianity to our world, it is by serving. It is by emptying. It is by others first. It is by not being greater than, it's by being less than. You hear that? Think about all the things the New Testament teaches. Forgive. Don't retaliate. Humble yourself. What are all those things all about? It's about serving others so that you might be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because what are we pointing to in those episodes? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, emptied himself on a cross. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. In a world of takers and rulers, Jesus chose to give and to serve. That's how we are saved, and that's how saved people should live. End of story, no exceptions. I encourage everybody tonight, before you go to bed, if you have time, read Philippians 2. If not, wake up tomorrow morning and read Philippians 2. That would be a great way to start the day. Philippians 2 says that, we should let the mind of Christ be in us, who was equal to God, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even the form of a servant on a cross, and died for our sins. So let each of you look out, not for their own interests, but for the interests of others. So what does greatness, how do you define greatness in the kingdom of God? That we're empty of conceit and pride, driven by love, defined by Christ. So as you read the rest of Mark, I want you to understand what Jesus is going to do. He dismantles religion. He dismantles this world's systems. And he makes it very clear that he is turning things upside down or right side up. That greatness in his kingdom is about getting rid of every ounce of conceit and every bit of pride. That you would be driven by the love that God displayed for you on the cross and defined by Jesus Christ, what he did, who he is, and who he says you are. Because guess what? 
If Jesus Christ says that you are God's child, saved, forgiven forever, what race, what competition are you in with this world? To what are you to compare yourself in this world? See, when you start living by that, by that standard, when you start living by what Christ, who Christ says you are, you don't care about the world's standards and the systems of this world, do you? Because guess what you are? You're free. Free. Driven by love. Defined by Christ. Jesus had to break the will of the disciples. Because up until Mark 10, they are so wrong about Christianity. They're fighting with each other about who is greater because that's what they have been taught by the world. And isn't it true that there's a lot of Christians that still work and live by those bankrupt virtues? But what do we know? Greatness is about being empty of conceit and pride because you are driven by love, defined by Christ. You don't need this world. You are free from its systems. You are saved from your sin. That's the good news. Thank God for it. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this good, good, good news. Thank you for this reminder of the kingdom of God and its standards, how it confronts the systems of this world, religion, politics, culture, economics, professions, academics, everything. It confronts this world and it says you've got it all wrong and you need to be freed. And God, thank you for it. Thank you for this liberating message. God, help us to model this. Help us to be determined to be greater than by the kingdom of God's standards. Be greater than by being less than. Be greater than by being a servant of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve. Lord, all of us are a recipient of that servant that died on the cross, of his gift of love and grace. And if we have received that love, God, transform our hearts that we might would give that love every single day. Help us to be free from competition and comparison and help us to be driven by love, defined by Christ. It's in his name we are thankful and we ask all of this. Amen.